Welcome to The Final Word, a Bible teaching ministry with pastor, teacher, and author Jim Andrews. The Final Word is grounded on the invincible conviction that what the Bible teaches, God teaches. And that is the last word. On this program, truth still matters. The Bible is in, Babel is out. The Final Word is funded by listeners like you. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about the program, please go to our website at thefinalwordradio.com. There you'll find archives so you can listen to any program you may have missed. Visit us on our social media platforms at The Final Word Radio and write us a note. We love hearing from our listeners. We'll provide other contact information at the end of the program, so have your pen ready. And now Jim Andrews continues his current study of God's Word. Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for joining us again on The Final Word. Before I launch today's exposition, I want to make our listening audience aware of some articles that I have written and tell you how to access them. If you will go to jimandrewsbooks.com, that's one word, jimandrewsbooks.com, you will find there information describing the books I have authored. One of them co-authored with my daughter. On top of that, on the same website, you'll see a tab that says Articles. If you will open that with your cursor, you will discover there are some articles that I've produced over the years that you may find interesting and helpful. For example, one of the most recent articles was my take on the demise of the culture wars and where I think we ought to go from here. Another article that appeared several years ago in a journal for biblical manhood and womanhood is entitled Boundaries Without Bonds. Another is a rebuttal of a tract that appeared several years back. The author attempted cleverly, but as I will show unsuccessfully, to persuade us that the scriptures do not condemn homosexual practice after all, that has all been a misunderstanding. Well, there will be others, but I mentioned those three. I'm not a regular blogger, but when sometimes things pop up on my radar that I feel I would like to address in a thoughtful way, I will sometimes produce a longer article like some of these. So I'm just happy to share them with you for whatever benefit they may have. We continue our exposition of the book of Hebrews. We've come now to Hebrews chapter 5. We discuss the first four verses in our last exposition. We will review and pick up in verse 5. Some of these Hebrew Christians have been looking back. We use the analogy, it's kind of like today, a rough analogy. Some people have been traditional Roman Catholics. They grew up in the church, that's all they ever known. And upon a day, they come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. And they learn that salvation is not through the church and it's not by works. But they learn that it is by the grace of God. And all of a sudden it's so liberating. It is so wonderful to know that they have peace with God and their sins are forgiven. And they have a hope in heaven. But in time, they begin to look back with some nostalgia to all those outward trappings of glory. I've been to Rome. I've been to the Vatican like many of you. And the human art and all that kind of thing is just amazing. It's astounding. And, of course, people like pomp and circumstance and ceremony. And you go to our churches, and many of them, unless it's a mega church somewhere, might be in a very unimpressive facility. Ours, for example, meets in a gym, which is pretty dressed up. But we sometimes kiddingly call it a sanctanasium. But it has none of the awe of a great cathedral. And so people can begin to look back. 
particularly if they begin to get a little off track spiritually, if they begin to grow a little cold, then all of a sudden they start to miss. The flesh starts to miss those things. And that's understandable. Well, that's the kind of thing that was happening to some of these Hebrew Christians. They were a little bit off track spiritually, which the writer will deal with. And they had become kind of dull of hearing. They had suffered some persecution, and they were probably missing their families from whom they had been cut off. And so they were having some second thoughts. The author is convinced they're not going to go there. He will tell us later. But the Word of God is unsparing. God knows how to create what he commands. He knows how to promote what he prescribes. And so he causes his servants to come along and to speak to these people as if they were already falling away, though he's convinced they won't, in order to warn them of the jeopardy of heading where they seem on the face of it to be heading. And he's been trying to show them from the end of chapter 4 into chapter 5, that we have, compared to the Jewish high priest of the Aaronic order, we have a great high priest, not one on earth, but one that has passed into the heavens. We have a high priest to whom the order of Aaron cannot compare. And so he continues in chapter 5. He reviews the office work of the earthly high priest in the old Jewish economy for a comparison. He says in verse 1, For every high priest taken from among men is appointed in behalf of men and things pertaining to God. In order, this is the priest's work, in order to offer both gifts and ritual sacrifices for sin. Now, they knew all that. They would agree with all that. Everybody would. Their service was to stand in on behalf of ordinary people as official mediators before God. Their business was to offer voluntary gifts and various prescribed ritual sacrifices, as directed by Old Testament law. Why did the people need a mediator or a middleman? Well, the lesson in this Old Testament religious arrangement was to make worshipers conscious of the fact, it was as part of the pedagogy, to make them conscious of the fact that God is holy, that they and themselves are defiled in His sight, and this defilement needed removal before they could approach God and find acceptance with Him. We are told later that without the shedding of blood, this was the lesson of the Old Testament ritual system, there is no remission of sins. And without the remission of sins, there is absolutely no approach for a man to a holy God. Only then are our gifts acceptable to God. Otherwise, both they, our gifts, and we are defiled. In verse 2, he gets this point across. The priest can deal gently with the ignorant and the misguided. Here's why he himself is also beset with weaknesses. Strictly and merely human high priests, such as those descended from Aaron, are competent to represent us ignorant and misguided worshipers gently. That's for the simple reason that the priests are in the same boat with the people. The high priests themselves are beset with weakness. They're human, merely human. They too are sinners, just as those for whom they mediate are sinners. So in verse 3, because of it, because he's beset by weakness, the human high priest, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so for himself. The moral and spiritual solidarity in sin with those whom those Old Testament priests represented before God, it means that those high priests 
had to offer sacrifices for their own sins as well as for the people. And in this respect, they were inferior to our Lord Jesus Christ. For unlike those priests, Jesus is not a partner in our human defilement. He's a partner in our humanity, but not our human defilement. And Jesus did not need, as they did, to offer sacrifice for himself. So his sympathy with us as high priest is not based upon mutual failure or turpitude, as theirs was. His sympathy with us is based upon shared temptation. Which brings us to verse 4. The author points out, talking about the priest of the Aaronic order, no one takes the honor to be a high priest to himself, but he receives it when he's called by God, even as Aaron was. Among men, he underscores the fact that no one could arrogate this priestly office to himself. It's not an honor that anyone could claim for himself. To be a high priest among the Jews belonged only to those whom God appointed. That was the case of the sons of Aaron. With them, God vested the high priestly office in the old economy. Now again, with all this, his readers would undoubtedly agree. This, verses 1 through 4, was common ground, so far as the function and the establishment of the high priestly office was concerned. But now, starting in verse 5, our author stakes out new ground concerning Christ, ground that should have been shared ground with these Hebrew Christians. But right now, it sorely needs to be clarified and reaffirmed. Again, remember what he's stressing. He's stressing that everything that we have in Jesus Christ is so much greater than anything they had before. Don't forget that. Don't overlook that. And so starting with verse 5, he's hitting that from another angle. So also, he says, Christ did not glorify himself, so as to become a high priest. I said earlier, he was a high priest. I mentioned that at the end of chapter 4. He's a high priest of a totally different order. He, God, who said to him, and now he quotes Psalm 2, Thou art my son, today I have begotten thee. And also in verse 6, he's quoting from the Old Testament, and God says in another passage, speaking of Christ, Thou art a priest forever, but not of the order of Aaron. Thou art a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's talk about that. Jesus was appointed by God as a high priest in heaven, as surely as the sons of Aaron were divinely designated high priests on earth, priests of the Old Covenant. Both the priest, the high priest, after Aaron were legitimate, but that one was only temporary. The other, the high priest of our Lord Jesus Christ, is of a higher order by far and eternal. Christ did not appoint himself a high priest, if they're wondering about that, he was appointed by God to this office. But if you're a Jew, you're going to say, huh? Huh? When? Where? That would be the natural question for a Jew accustomed to the high priesthood of the sons of Aaron as the one and only priesthood they knew anything about. So our author immediately cites two passages from the Psalms. The first is from Psalm 2. It shows that Christ is, first of all, the royal son or the heir of all things. It says, I quote, you are my son. His son in the royal or monarchical sense here. Son in that sense does not exclude the essential sense, by the way. When it says, today, I have begotten thee, that's referring to his installation as king of kings and lord of lords in heaven at the right hand of the Father after his ascension. The other passage in verse 6 comes from Psalm 110.4. There the Lord declares his designation of Christ as not merely his royal son, our king, but the king doubles as our eternal high priest, but after in a totally different order 
he's a priest of an order vastly superior to the temporal, Aaronic model. Thou art a high priest forever, not temporarily, according to the order of Melchizedek, that is, an entirely different order than the order of Aaron. So if you want to know when he was appointed a high priest, there it is. So clearly he's showing them God established two priestly orders. You didn't know that, did you? One was the Aaronic priesthood. That was appropriate to the old and now obsolete covenant. That order was temporal and transient and symbolic. That order, the one of Aaron, prefigured the other, the order of Melchizedek, which happens to be eternal. So Christ is our high priest belonging to the latter. So superior. Yes, we all need a divinely ordained high priest. We need a mediator imposed between us and God. We need a mediator who can offer those gifts and sacrifices appointed by God to render us and our approach to God acceptable in his sight. The problem is, those of the ironic institution were symbolic. They were pedagogical. They were shadows. They were teaching us that without the shedding of blood, that is, without an atonement, guilt before God could not be removed. God is holy, and sinners must be cleansed. I mean, that was the message. But in reality, no sinner could be cleansed. No one could be saved. No one could be accepted into the family of God on the basis of the sacrifices of bulls and goats offered up by merely human priests who themselves were sinners, just like those for whom they interceded. He'll hit this point harder later. In reality, our salvation could only be effected by perfect sacrifice offered up by a perfect priest, that is, a sinless and eternal high priest. And Jesus Christ is the only one that meets those requirements. Right now, the author focuses upon Christ as the perfect or ideal high priest, unlike Aaron, the one who is the true mediator for us before a holy God. To represent us in that capacity, our high priest needed one to be one of us and two, to be perfectly righteous in the eyes of God, unlike merely human high priest. He needed to be one who didn't need any atonement for himself. Jesus Christ fits those stipulations. He came to earth. He lived in the flesh. He suffered every imaginable testing in principle, overcame every temptation through intense power, the supply of the Spirit, and because of his piety, he was raised from the dead. In the days of his flesh, verse 7, that is, when he was here on earth, he offered up both prayers and supplications, intense prayers and supplications, with loud crying and tears to him, God the Father, who was able to save him from death and who was heard because of his piety. Though the gospel records leave us no specific account of such agonized prayer on the part of Jesus, unless we're talking about the Garden of Gethsemane, we can surmise that the apostles in their oral traditions passed this information along. One can surmise that Jesus agonizing in the Garden of Gethsemane, where his intensity in prayer was such that he sweated what was like great drops of blood, is the situation alluded to, if not others. The text mentions entreaties and supplications as two facets of prayer. The first, entreaties, I believe, accentuates simply the act of asking God for specific things and supplications. The second, is inclusive of that idea, but it adds the thought of approaching God to place oneself under his protection in whatever it is 
that one ask of God. As for the prayer that he be saved out of death, that supplication is comprehended in the high priestly prayer of John 17, where the Savior prayed, you remember, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy Son, that your Son may glorify you. The resurrection or deliverance out of death was part of that equation. Here we are bound to ask how it served the author's argument in this context. That is, what point is he trying to get across by adding that Jesus was heard because of his spotless piety or reverence? That he was heard, we know. So what does it add to his argument here? To add that it was his piety or reverential devotion that called forth God's response to be delivered from death. I think the answer is that it serves his argument in this way. It accentuates the righteousness of our high priest on the human side. He's been making a point of this. He is vastly superior to Aaron. There was no blemish in Christ that death should have any claim on him. Remember, the wages of sin is death. Had Jesus been a sinner, or had he sinned, well, he himself would have needed a redeemer, and death would have held him. But he was heard by God when he faced the demands of the law, and he met them at the awful price by way of suffering. Though being a son in his essential being, he was not sheltered in any way in his humanity from suffering and temptation. Rather, we're told he learned obedience, verse 8, from the things he suffered. This statement does not suggest that through suffering Jesus had to be corrected, that he had to be habituated to doing righteousness. Rather, it means that his suffering and the conditions of his earthly existence forced him on the human side to choose between living according to God's law or taking the easy way out. His sufferings brought him to those wise in the road that we call testings. And where there are testings, there are temptations, such as an amount of temptation. On his human side, he had to choose of those wise between right and wrong. In making righteous choice under stress and in distress, he learned the habit of obedience. Had he not faced those hard choices, had he not been subjected to suffering in the process, Jesus would have remained innocent like a child is innocent. But righteousness is born in a battle of hard choices. Never forget that. In making those obedient choices consistently, and thus fulfilling the law of God without one misstep ever, well, he was perfected as our high priest. In other words, unlike those priests of the order of Aaron, who had first to be cleansed of their own sins before they could mediate for the sins of others, our high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, whoa, he is vastly superior in that he is perfect. He's without any stain or blemish that might disqualify him from acting as our high priest in offering himself as the only sufficient atoning sacrifice for our sins. So, verse 9, having been perfected, completed, squared up at all four corners, he became for all who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Could not happen under the priesthood of Aaron. He is the source of eternal salvation in the sense that he is both a sinless high priest who mediates between us and God. And because his office as our high priest combines with self-sacrifice as an all-sufficient offering for our sins. He's able to save us. Therefore, because as our mediator he lives forever, because his atoning sacrifice endures forever, because it never loses its value, he is the source of salvation 
that is forever, eternal. What could be more secure than that? That's why we are secure in Him. What Jesus won for us who trust in Him is not a provisional or conditional salvation, but note carefully, it is an eternal salvation. Here we're talking about the eternal security of the believer. It's not a come-and-go salvation, depending on how you or I are behaving at any given time. It's not as if our safety in Christ is based on our good works or performance, but it is based upon his office and his offering of himself as our high priest. Never forget that, dear friends. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pope. You need Jesus. You don't need anybody else. That said, do take note of this. The language defines those for whom Jesus is the source of eternal salvation as those who obey him. Obey, follow, are subject to. That's what the Greek verb means. We would have expected who believe or trust in him. Now, folks, the terms of salvation have not changed in the book of Hebrews. But our writer has made it plain earlier. We went over that, chapter 3, beginning of chapter 4. He's made it plain that responsiveness to the will of God is just the flip side of faith or trust. We see this clearly to remind you in chapter 3, verses 18 and 19, and chapter 4, verses 2, 6, and 11. So many professing Christians do not get that linkage at all. Many just go merrily along, presumptuously feeling all safe, and all secure in Christ, because they've made some kind of magical profession with their lips, and they get these warm fuzzies all over their hearts toward Christ. But frankly, their feet and their hands don't really follow. Friends, listen to me. Faith follows Christ. And any so-called faith that doesn't gradually and eventually rise to that has to be considered bogus. Well, where do I get that? Well, a lot of places, but I'll direct you to James, chapter 2, verses 14 to the end of the chapter, where that is abundantly clear. Faith that does not follow is a fraud. It is stillborn. It is DOA, dead on arrival. I get so sick the longer I live of these shallow professions of faith, where people talk the game, but they don't walk the game. We're not saved by faith plus works. We are, however, saved by a faith that works. Faith responds to God. Salvation is eternal for those who trust in Christ. And those who trust in Christ are those who follow Christ. Always have been, still are, and will be in the future. But those for whom faith is just so much talk, and that talk does not really, on Monday morning, translate into the walk. I say again, that's not faith, that's a fraud. Such people do not lose their salvation. They never knew the Lord to begin with. Wow. Somebody says, if that is so, that really casts suspicion on the credibility of multitudes of church people. No kidding. Absolutely. The outward institutional church, the local churches, are very much like ancient Israel. By no means are all of those who profess to be of Christ really in Christ any more than hosts of those who profess to be Israel were really true Israel. Folks, nothing has changed. Now to review. The overarching point here is that in Jesus Christ, we have a high priest of a higher and superior order to anything the Jews had under the Old Covenant in the 
erotic order. We'll come back to this in our next study. Thank you, dear friends, for joining us on The Final Word. God bless you, and have a wonderful day. The Final Word is a listener-supported ministry. Should you want to partner with us or want other information about this program, please visit our website at thefinalwordradio.com. Our postal address is The Final Word, 4565 Carmen Drive, Lake Oswego, Oregon, 97035. Our email address is info at thefinalwordradio.com. Our phone number is 503-699-9840. If this program has ministered to you, tell a friend about it. We do solicit your prayers for God's hand upon this outreach. Be sure the word. Be sure the word. Just be sure the word gets in the hand.